Today on Not Cleared, Morgan and I talk to our colleagues Kyle Scheidler and Mike Waller, and we have a news roundtable talking about President Biden's recent comments at the climate conference of the parties and just more generally how useless and stupid this entire conference is and how contradictory most of the points that people were making at the summit really were in reality. Then we talked to Mike about a piece and documentary he has coming out with Tucker Carlson about the January 6th incident in D.C. And we get into some things that the mainstream media just has not been reporting on about the perpetrators from that day. And we finished with a discussion of an article from The Washington Post that talks about the Biden administration contemplating paying families and individuals up to $450,000 who were put into prison during Trump's zero tolerance policy with respect to the border. And we get into some of the downstream effects that this policy and this financial incentive might have that the Biden administration definitely has not considered. Okay, so President Biden was speaking at the conference of the parties yesterday and he apologized for Trump basically pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords when he was president a few years ago. And Biden said, quote, this is the decisive decade. To state the obvious, we meet with the history, with the eyes of history upon us, which doesn't even make any sense. I can't even read it. And then after that, he goes on. So he says, this is the dec decisive decade when decade is 10 years, correct? And then he says, <laughs> then he says that we're at the strategy to reach net zero emissions by 2050. So like 30 years from now. <laughs> So essentially so, not the decade. Correct. So that, that sounds right. So he that. like he literally contradicts himself like two sentences apart from each other. And this is just kind of a thing that I have grown kind of just numb to hearing all these people saying like, oh, you're going to die five days from now. And they always just seem to be pushing the goalposts further and further from when something is actually going to happen. So first of all, they, they have been saying that Al Gore was like 2020 was the I don't even remember. It's they've said it. Al Gore was also at this thing. And Obama. Yeah. And they've, they're comparing, they're assuming that the state of the world right now is the best it's ever going to be. And any deviation is a terrible, horrible thing. It's that's stupid. The world has changed its entire existence. And who's to say that a warmer world wouldn't be better. We'd be able to grow more food. You know, it's not necessarily bad, but there's the, Reality is, so in Europe, they all have these dumb goals of net zero emissions or whatever, everything green energy. Green energy is not good. It's not reliable. It's not. So Germany has done the most and they are relying on solar and wind, which you can't predict if that's if it's going to be windy. Um, and so they have to rely on they've cut their carbon emissions. OK, and here's the other thing, too. Coal is way worse for the environment than gas, but they are having to import more coal to support the, I've never, do you understand why people are like electric cars are so much better than gas, but they're charged with electricity, which comes from a coal plant. How is that better? It's because most people don't actually understand how power, our power infrastructure works. Is that genuinely it? Is it like some net, if you know, your car's emission, emitting cleaner well, I mean, I think it's, it, you know, it's it, out of sight, out of mind. So, you know, when the car's running, I can physically see that it is running and that, you know, I have a I have a tailpipe. And in the winter, you know, you see gas coming out of the t 
tailpipe and smoke and stuff when it's cold. And so I'll be like, oh, okay, well, I can visit, vis- visibly see, like, that must be emissions, and I have to have emissions tests and all these things. So I, I visibly think about my car as being something that emits, you know, carbon dioxide or whatever, uh, carbon monoxide. I don't think about the power plant, which is well away from me in some community I never visit, that runs coal or natural gas and what it emits. Uh, and therefore, I think, well, if I get it, if I get an electric car, which is produced by, you know, heavy metals that are produced in massive strip mines that I will also never see, uh, then I'm that I think I'm doing a good thing. Right. Yeah, because the well, batteries that go into Teslas and everything, those aren't just like made out of water or something like these people think they probably have more coal burned or whatever to produce these giant batteries that huge environmental damage yeah the minerals used to make these batteries yeah but no one ever talks about that right and the other thing that's stupid about germany is that they have to (laughs) leave that in they have to import natural gas from russia which right now gas prices are high which shockingly if you tax gas and with the intention of getting rid of it it means that people aren't going to have to pay a lot and there's a big shortage in europe right now and russia was saying um we're not going to send more gas because we want you to expedite the process of approving Nord Stream 2 which is another pipeline which makes them which makes germany even more dependent on russia which is a huge security risk because anytime russia wants something they can just turn off energy to to Germany and they'll get it. Um, Climate change as the biggest problem we face as for for national security is a joke. I don't understand how it's related to national security at all. I don't, why would we have intelligence agencies looking at it? That's not their specialty. Um, But it actually, the results of it have created national security problems. Right, and the purpose of having our huge intelligence apparatus is to get secret intelligence, which is information that others don't want us to get. So we go to extreme lengths to get secret intelligence. You don't need that to monitor climate change. You have, no, but they can't. have meteorological they entities right, that can do Right, that. it's a totally different thing. Right. So when you, so it's really a politicization of the whole national security process when you're putting, like, gender. What does that have to do with national security? Well, apparently it's a big pressing issue, right, according to to certain people running our Pentagon and the rest of our government. It's not a real defense issue. Right. It's a social issue, and it's a social engineering issue. So climate change, which used to be global warming, which previous to that was global cooling, which before that was atomic winter, and so on, they keep changing the names to suit whatever changes in science or other trends would discredit their previous notion. Uh, But this whole climate change as a national security issue is a bogus issue. There are aspects of climate change that are national security issues, but not the way this is being portrayed to us. Yeah, and then the other dumb thing is that this this is the G26 or some some UN thing that doesn't matter what it's called, but um, you made me lose my train of thought. Sorry, Morgan, your, your contempt for the, the United Nations just warms my heart. Oh, good. Um, there, I have a lot of it. So. This agreement is with China. The United States meets all of its goals. The Western countries are not the main problem with, let's say, um, carbon emissions is, it, it's going to kill us all. It's all serious. We have no control over what China and developing countries do. And that is the biggest issue. Um, 
And the other well, thing, we do actually. We do, but we're not we using it. We just choose it. not to exercise. So this is a feel-good thing of, right. oh, we're China. Please stop admitting. And China's like, oh, we definitely, definitely will. Well, also China and Russia weren't at this stupid conference that they had the other day. Yeah, they didn't even go. He, even Biden was practically not at it. He sort of stumbled right. in. Yeah. He literally when, fell asleep during it. That's well, not a he, joke. He, he, rather, as the president of the United States, you stand at or near the center of these, especially when you're the main sponsor. And he sort of bumbled in next to the head of some... African country, and even then he was sort of social distancing himself from from the guy. So he he, he went empty-handed, came late for the game, and then marginalized his very presence at the opening. So he, even he's not taking it very seriously. Right, and yet, this- yet at the same time, he brought almost all of the cabinet and like 800 other staffers. That's it was exactly like 800 was cars or something? And just the fact that he has to bring all these people here for his stupid little speech when he was awake, it just shows how not in control or it was like 50,000 people from all over the world coming to this event, you know, through planes and yeah, which how they got there. Yeah, they didn't, right. they didn't swim. Right. And just, it's, it's funny you bring up the China thing because yeah, carbon emissions, that's bad. But the other thing that always shocks me is if you look at like pollution into the ocean. So I did some research before this and it's just this quick chart of the countries that are polluting the oceans the most. And it's measured in annual metric tons of waste that like goes into the ocean or whatever. And China has 8.8 million metric tons of waste going into the ocean each year. And then in this article, it's like still trying to throw shade at the U.S. It's like, oh, the U.S. still has a really big problem of this. But they are annually only putting 0.11 million metric tons yeah. of waste into Nobody the ocean. Nobody is just shoving trash in the ocean in the United States. In China, they literally do that. That's right. why we have to have stupid paper straws in D.C. Um, it's illegal to have normal straws because of the tur- the, the problem is not us it's again coming from china but we're giving them leverage like they weren't at this event but they know the biden administration is obsessed with this issue and they can be like well if you do this we'll do this on it They're, but spoiler communists lie they don't care and i don't know why democrats haven't figured out that they're not going to keep their promises well and that's the other thing they at this a lot of republicans won't either that's true at this summit Biden said that he's going to be working with Congress to set aside $3 billion a year to help these developing countries adapt to climate change. And this Washington Post article is trying to spin that and saying like, oh, this is the president taking a big stand against China because if we're helping these other countries produce less CO2 emissions, like China can suck it basically. So, yeah, so do you know who doesn't? Here's the irony, right? Um, is climate change a threat to national security? No. Are climate change Activists? meetings... <laughs> a threat to national security? Yes. Yeah. So first we have, uh, in in efforts to cut our own production, we offshore major industries to China, including industries that are important for our own self-defense. But also they, China does it in a worse um And then they proceed, yeah, yeah, they then proceed to produce products for us at, at far lower environmental standards. Mm-hmm. So we incentivize them. We provide yeah. them the financial mm-hmm. incentive to pump more carbon into the atmosphere. And we're then going to pay them, we're paying them to, to reduce it. the yeah. carbon yeah. that they produce uh, when they make items for our internal markets because we won't make them here in the United States ourselves. The whole thing is from you know start to finish a sham. And it's- Ima- Imagine if we just impose tariffs. Like mm-hmm. Biden, I'm not a tax guy, but I don't care about Chinese products and I'm all for for disincentivizing anybody from buying products from communist China. But imagine if Biden was serious about climate change, he would say, I'm posing, I'm imposing a 300% you know, 
carbon uh, tariff on all Chinese-made products to incentivize China to get with the game and, and stop polluting the atmosphere so much. But, of course, he's not doing that. And there's a reason for it that we all know. But you know who really doesn't care about climate change is people without electricity in developing countries. They're, they're not going to be like, oh, no, it's not green enough for me. Pass. Like, they just need electricity and basic function. I think John Kerry went to, um, when he was Secretary of State, gave a speech. I don't remember the country. But it just, it's so elitist and tone deaf to, to the reality of people, like what people actually care about. And, and I mean, you get the irony where we, you know, we, we abandon markets and, and industries to, to China, uh, you know, and, and we don't compete for things like mineral extraction in places like Africa. So uh, the people who end up doing all that industry are the Chinese who don't care about environmental standards. Or people. Where, or people or human rights standards. Uh, whereas if we competed with them for, the, for that effort, you know, we could, in fact, make electric cars with minerals extracted by American companies with higher environmental and safety standards. Um, who would pay people and not who would actually like slave pay wage. Yeah. Right. All of these things could be possible uh, in an, in an you know, America first way. Yeah. It's funny, like, but it's actually not what the, any of these uh, climate activists are actually trying to promote. Kyle, we've got the you know, sustainable coffee and free trade coffee and all this feel-good Whole Foods stuff, and you, you can tell when anything's free trade, it's usually low quality because they're trying to guilt trip you into buying an inferior product. But, but you would think they would do the same thing with electric cars and batteries and electronics and all this other stuff coming out of China and elsewhere, and they're not doing it. We all know why. So we've got this this phony narrative by these hypocritical, Wait, really super wealthy people. We don't know why. Tell, tell us why. Why? Because they're all hypocrites, and they they, they it's want just, the free it's just, stuff. It's the just cheap stuff. virtue signaling, right? But they want a virtue signal where it's convenient for them. Well, this entire thing is just a giant virtue signal, and I like the Biden administration has made it a point to everything that Trump did undo that, or everything that Trump undid redo that, and that's what Biden said with the Paris Climate Accord. But it's like even if you're in or not in one of these stupid little conferences that they have, you can still take it upon yourself to mitigate the CO2 emissions or whatever. And they just say, oh, we're going to be rejoining the Paris Climate Accords. And they think that, oh, it, it's solved. Everything is fine now. But that's not the case. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. I saw like a sidebar article talking about this, uh, this campaign. And they were pointing out that, you know, American allies are struggling with the reality that uh, you know, anything Biden does might get changed in the next administration and there's no continuity. It's like, well, hold on a second now. You didn't have a problem when Biden is undoing everything that the previous Trump administration had done. So really, this only goes one way. Um, but it's, it's a classic example. Like, why is it that getting out of the Paris Accord is, you know, a unilateral cowboy action by an American president, but getting back into it is, is not? Because they like it. Yeah. It's fashionable. It's trendy. It's social. It makes a lot of rich old people feel cool. And, but ultimately, like any of these, uh, you know, world international forums, they're all designed fundamentally to restrain American power, to restra restrain the American con economy, to restrain American power. Uh, so there, I mean, there isn't that that you know, there is a national security element to all of this right. because it does. Uh, Allow it gives other countries an opportunity to restrain our capabilities, our economic potential, etc., yeah. at a very low cost. Yeah, 
You, so you had today's climate activists when they were in their 20s, today's older climate activists, were the ones who shut down the American nuclear power industry, destroyed it completely. So now we don't export nuclear power plants for civilian purposes. We don't even build them anymore in our own country. They haven't been built in a generation. Uh, they're the safest way to produce a huge amount of clean energy that's not going to dump carbon into the atmosphere, yet we don't have a nuclear industry anymore. So who are the biggest exporters of nuclear power plants? Communist China and Russia. So again, we're empowering our adversaries by depriving ourselves of generating our own nuclear power. I've never understood why that's a bit... It's clean and it's safe. Is it just that people are like, nuclear, it's probably dangerous? Is that the gist? There were a few reasons for it. This was in the 70s, so I was in high school, and I remember it because that's how I got my training to protest against construction of a nuclear plant in our state. And the, the protest movement actually succeeded in, in cutting the production in half. It was supposed to be a twin reactor. Now it was just a, a single reactor. The point is, though, it's got some of the... This is New England. Now they've got some of the most expensive electric power in the country in one of the coldest areas of the country because the environmental wackos of the 1970s were saying we can't have nuclear power because it's going to kill all of us. But it's clean and it's, is it just a, people are irrational about it? Yeah, there's never been a serious nuclear accident in the United States. But now what do you have? You go to all of these plants that they've been shutting down and you, you can drive to them and see them. There are these concrete heavy canisters sitting out there in broad daylight with spent nuclear fuel that's going to be radioactive for thousands of years, and it's going to have to be maintained. Be why? Because the environmentalists don't want us to dispose it. Well, so the, in the fact, there's, a, there's, a, way to there's a way to use down. that spent nuclear fuel for additional nuclear power. Yeah, you can recycle it. Recycle nuclear waste gets rid of the radioactivity even more, and generates a lot of clean, carbon-free power. But why do that when you can have conferences that require 50,000 people flying in and that Biden is so bored by that he falls asleep? They should have yeah, had well, Greta there. Maybe that would have woken yeah, up. Yeah, she wakes people She up. was there, wasn't she? She was outside? Probably. I don't know. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the next thing we're going to cover is there's there's been... Um, some the January 6th thing is coming up again. Tucker Carlson's doing a documentary which features Mike heavily. And so I just wanted to, while we have you, Mike, just kind of go over that. He for you were there during it. You took video and observed the whole thing. What first of all, you did an, you wrote an article about a poll that we did based on what Americans think about January 6th. And most of most Americans do not consider it an insurrection. They consider it a riot. What is the difference, Mike? Well, first, more people consider it an unserious thing like civil disobedience yeah. or demonstration or trespassing than they do insurrection. And and even a, only a third of the Democrats, not even think of it as an Can insurrection. you define an insurrection? An insurrection is a is a is a broad based movement where people rise up against the government. To, to for mass defiance of authority or preparation to overthrow our government, or certainly taking the law into their own hands. Mm. That didn't happen on no. January 6th. You, you had maybe a couple hundred people, tops, with a lot of visibility, a lot of made-for-social media, made-for-video events, but that was 
a really small group of people in comparison to the hundreds of thousands of people who were there. Yeah. So what did you, what do you think happened? Knowing what you observed and then everything that's come out since, what do you think happened that day? There was a, there were two things happened that day. There was an organized or set of organized political events that were scheduled in advance that got permits from the District of Columbia government and the federal government. So the federal and D.C. authorities knew who the organizers were, knew pretty much the types of people who were going to attend, and they planned accordingly. But at the same time, there were groups that planned to use those legal actions as cover for their own subversive purposes. And these were the ones who did the actual attacks on the police and the attacks on the Capitol and were trying to goad unwitting people into sort of a crowd mentality. Okay, so you're saying that this was primarily a Trump, you know, MAGA people. They had come to the district before, and in the past they haven't caused the kind of chaos, say, Antifa does. Or They didn't have any any problems. Right, so they weren't prepared for anything remotely close to that. And then there were people within the crowd who were deliberately trying to make it more violent and and turned into something chaotic. Right. There were organized people with military backgrounds. You could tell by their military bearing and by the Mm -hmm. command and control of their cadres that you could see who were inciting people to attack the Capitol building and attack the police. How were they doing that? Well, we have videos now that can show it, and that's what Tucker Carlson is showing in his documentary series this week. These were people who... You get people, normal Americans, who were upset about the election results Mm -hmm. and the cheating and the fraud that was involved uh, to varying degrees in the 2020 election. So they're upset about that. The president's making what's essentially a farewell speech to his grassroots supporters. So they're all in there, and they're just going to go to to petition Congress the way any group does, the way the right-to-life groups do or the pro-abortion groups do every year. So it was not a big deal. Authorities are always well prepared to work that stuff. What came in was this group of people who, people in their, uh, men in their 50s and 60s with military background, and then younger guys, mostly guys anyway, in their, looked like in their 20s, some in their 30s, who had come together in various units. They were designated by different colored tape. Hmm. They were wearing tactical gear, some of them. Some of them changed from, from, um, black block type clothing or other types of civilian clothing to to tactical gear, meaning camouflage and, and uh, camouflage backpacks, which were all the same size and style and proportion. So somebody had, had packed these. They were probably similarly packed with similar gear. Somebody bought these things in advance and equipped everybody in advance for this purpose. They Many were wearing helmets. Many had GoPro cameras. Many had... Uh, gas masks or even respirators. So they were prepared for something causing a lot of trouble. Those were the ones who actually broke through. And and as you can see in the videos, they were the ones who launched the actual attacks into the Capitol building and uh, and against the police. But what you get in any of these situations in a crowd mentality, it's like a really good concert or, you know, a, a, a tailgate party at a sports event. Yeah, people end up doing dumb things that they wouldn't ordinarily do and they hadn't planned to do it. And so they get riled up and they say, yeah, come on and let's do this. So you get these covert cadre that would then goad people into going in and joining them and breaking the law or attacking police. But then the other thing was you had the police welcoming people into the Capitol building at the right. same time. And people saying, come on in, let's go check it out. So you get a curiosity factor of crowds. This is why the federal government, the Biden administration, 
never arrested anyone for insurrection crimes. It's it's right. defined it's by statute. And, yeah. Most of the, and even the FBI, the number three in the FBI came out and said most of these people were just trespassers and out of towners who got caught up in the moment. They didn't. Well, and a crime. like you, there was the video of the people staying within the velvet. Um, what are those called? Ropes. Yeah, the velvet, velvet ropes, ropes. Not clearly just walking through the Capitol, not thinking. I'm sure and they that were they, looking around in awe up inside yeah, the Capitol. Yeah, I'm dome. sure they didn't think, oh, I'm cause I'm part of an insurrection. You know, like law-abiding people don't stay within the velvet ropes typically. Right. Um. So were were these people the people causing it? Um, Trump supporters. We still don't know everything. There have been a number of arrests of people who were Trump supporters, but the federal authorities have not identified who organized the violence. They know who organized the protests, guys like Ali Alexander, who's in the Tucker Carlson video. He got the permit for it. He wasn't expecting any of this violence, and he's not being charged with, with crimes, but nobody to this day knows who organized the violence, and that's, that's really important. So what the feds are doing right now is they've been looking at who actually broke into the Capitol, which is fine. Go ahead and investigate that. But why not investigate those who are outside the Capitol organizing this as well? To my knowledge, they haven't been investigating that. Is that because they're dumb or because there's a reason not to? They're, they're bureaucratic. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, if, if there's an attack being launched, you don't just want to identify the attackers. You want more than anything else to identify their command and control. That hasn't been done. That's the thing about all this that's very just surprising to me. You described all the military gear and stuff that these people outside are having, but everyone is just focused on those few people that went inside and were sitting at Pelosi's desk or that dude in like the buffalo hat or whatever. Just why is it just because they can paint them as, oh, look at these crazy Trump people that are wearing these crazy outfits and they're the the reason that this happened and they're the reason that this was worse than 9-11, but... There's all this other stuff going on outside that nobody knows about. I mean, I guarantee nobody knows half the stuff that you just said right there. Yeah, well, and it's just a question of being there and, of course, and having studied it. So so I wouldn't have known what to look for had I not been trained as an anti-nuclear activist fighting nuclear energy in the 70s when the, the, the Soviets were running this as an active measures operation to tear our country down. And I was just some dumb teenage kid who got roped into that. So you know what to what to look for. Kyle, since most of our listeners probably aren't participating in like black blocks or anything, it's some it's a a, an idea that's hard to to explain to normal people who have jobs. Um, Can you explain kind of like how this works in a protest? What the left? We don't know who did what in at January sixth, but in general, how this kind of thing can sure. Sure. So just to begin with, the the term black block comes out of Germany and German uh, anarchist protests and uh, Antifa protests against police. It's uh, specifically refers to a sort of um, method of maneuver and of hiding your identity by everybody dressing in black, covering their face, um, so that you can't. It's harder to identify you. That's all that it means. A block is simply a maneuver element of people. Um, you typically have a number of different types of blocks. You can be an open block, which means anybody who wants to can come. You can have a closed block, which means it's only those who are a part of the plan. Uh, those are less common for obvious reasons because if you if everybody involved is part of the plan uh, and they all get arrested, then it becomes very easy to figure out who the organizers are. 
if you have what's called a semi-open block, it's when you have your organizers who are in black block disguised with all of the other people who come wearing the same uniform. So I might put out a, a message on social media saying, everybody wear black, uh, or it could be everybody wear yellow or whatever. Uh, but then the people who are part of the actual plan are hidden within that crowd. And when the time comes to carry out the activity, whatever it is, it might be uh, breaking into a building. It might be shattering glass in front of a bank. It might be attacking people, whatever it is. Then the people who are who are executing that uh, that plan break out of the crowd, conduct that action, and then disappear back into the crowd. Yeah, the way you've described it before was that there's like usually three groups, like a big protest, like a BLM protest, where there's tons of people, easy, easily disguised as everything, but they have no idea what's going on. The second group is like willing to attack police to distract from whatever else, from other nefarious things like throwing Molotov cocktails in federal buildings or whatever they decide on. So while the while the other people are fighting the police. So it's a very... Right. And it, to compare it to the January 6th example, what is so interesting is you clearly don't have what is very common on the left uh, called diversity of tactics, which means the other members of the protests tolerate and do not call attention to criminal acts conducted by other members on their side. That is the opposite of what you see in January 6th, where we have multiple videos of protesters, you know, yelling at people who are breaking windows, calling them Antifa, uh, yelling at people who are encouraging uh, acts of violence or criminal acts, calling them calling them feds. Uh, and there are a number of videos showing that kind of behavior that that make quite clear uh, that, as Mike said, you had a large crowd, most of whom were not there for for the event that actually takes place they were they were there for the protest and the speeches they were not there for the pre-planned attack on the capitol which actually took place so it just seems like all of this was a lot more planned and strategic than the media is making it seem right right because the media at first they came out and said donald trump incited this riot he incited his supporters gather around the white house to march on the capitol and attack that was a lie. First, Which, he didn't. But second, this was going on before he finished his speech. Yeah, and there's no way to get that. People think the mall is like, not that. It's the distance is quite. He was speaking or, at the ellipse by the White House. So that's 16 okay. blocks west of the Capitol, mile and a half away. And then it takes about you know, 20 minutes to walk that distance, half an hour to walk that distance. Because people don't walk really fast in these marches. But if you're in a big crowd, I would think more than that. It would take longer than that. Right. Mm -hmm. But what we saw during that that procession to the Capitol was we saw small groups of three or four or five individuals, many with helmets and cameras and mm -hmm. all with packs uh, racing ahead. They weren't associating with anybody else. It was a pretty festive crowd. I mean, Chuck Schumer went bananas when when my my eyewitness account was read into the record in a Senate hearing. He went crazy saying that it's it's. Mindless garbage is what he called it. But it was a festive crowd. They were singing. They were talking. They were Everyone was friendly with each other. And, and not everybody was upbeat because they were upset about the protest. But most people were just excited to be in Washington and meet people who felt the way they did. But then there were these others who acted paranoid and weren't associating and didn't fit in and weren't there for the moment. They were there on a mission because you could tell by their mannerism the speed at which they moved and the small groups in which they moved. And then 
looking back on videos that we took, you can see they're marked with blue tape, orange tape, green tape, red tape, operating as designated organized units. Mm-hmm. The other thing, living here, having been around some of these groups, there's a very distinct thing between like, you know, a family from middle America who's come to Washington to the first time to participate in something with their kids versus Antifa. Just a very different crowd. Or even just the the average professional climate protester. Yeah, it's it's night and day. And one of the things last summer was that um, because most most conservative crowds are coming from out of town, they kept walking through BLM Plaza and getting attacked and getting stuff thrown at them. Um, but it wasn't like they were deli- they just had, they don't know the city very well. They didn't know that they had no clue they were walking right into it. But it I don't think they would have. Um, it's not filled with locals typically. Right. And there's a reverence that a lot of out-of-towners have for Washington, D.C. It's like, mm-hmm. wow, there's the Washington Monument, and they're all gawking. It's, it's like, go to New York City, you can tell the out-of-towners because they're all looking up at the skyscrapers, where right. the locals just ignore them. And they're much friendlier than people from D.C. Yeah, they're nice. <laughs> yeah. They don't, yeah. It's not you a feel very safer high than, yeah, yeah. They're not going to force you to kneel or raise a communist fist or anything. I mean, it's funny because if you'd think an incited mob would not have members who would pick up candy wrappers that they see lying on the pavement. And the city didn't supply trash receptacles for this protest. They always do for every other protest I've seen. And I've been here for now 41 years since college. So they didn't put out trash receptacles. They only put out six porta potties for that whole mile and a half route for hundreds of thousands of people. There's a reason to do that. Some, some bureaucrats somewhere who knew what the deal was decided we're going to make people as uncomfortable as possible and not provide them with restrooms or they just knew that they wouldn't never mind the left tends to not care either way well no but the left you put out as many portable bathrooms as you want at a left-wing protest you're still going to have people exactly exactly and maybe they just knew that the this the right wouldn't do that you know this crowd wasn't going to do that right i mean i think the other thing we have to address um if we're going to talk about this issue is the treatment of the people who are in in jail on charges from January 6th. Uh, as you pointed out, Mike, most of them being misdemeanors uh, and nonviolent crimes. But you still have hundreds of people who are being held without bail, who are being held in, in solitary in solitary, or in, in a special prison just for D.C. protesters from January 6th. Uh, you have people who are only getting bail uh, after writing letters repudiating Trump and their political opinions. Uh, I mean, these, these things are, are fundamentally un-American. Oh, imagine making, and, having to make a political statement in order to get due process. Yeah. And, and I mean, you can think as you like about, uh, you know, what happened on January 6th. And I think for a lot of us in DC who have seen many, many protests outside, uh, you know, various political buildings, uh, even those that get rowdy, we've seen senators offices get, get occupied. We've seen, uh, congressional buildings get occupied. Uh, for us, it's a little bit, you know, it, it's sort of the way DC it happens in DC. It's one of those things that happen in DC, and to see the way that they have responded to that, uh, when at the same time they still have not made any arrests or suggested they have any leads about the individual that they believe planted those pipe bombs, 
or hoax pipe bombs, uh, that, I mean, raises pretty serious questions about what their priorities are. The fact that they haven't identified some of these individuals, Mike, that you've identified, and in fact, don't even list them as suspects they are looking for, or in some cases, previously listed them as suspects and then removed them from the list. Uh, all of these raise very serious questions about what their priorities are in, in conducting this investigation. Right. So what, what Tucker showed on the first episode of the program, of his three-part documentary, was an individual from Arizona who was seen the night before telling people in the streets, we're going to, we're going to go for the Capitol tomorrow. And then that very next morning, he was the one who was confronting the Capitol Police to tear down the barriers to get up into the Capitol. That same individual and whispering things to other people to give orders, people who were under his operational control. He was on the FBI list. The FBI then removed him from the list, changed the website so that you couldn't find it, but you can on the Wayback Machine. And all of a sudden he's off with no charges at all, yet there's video proof that he was doing these things, which has led some, like Darren Beatty at Revolver.News, to conclude that he was an FBI plant. Now, I don't have the evidence that Darren has, so I, I don't conclude who was behind this, but obviously somebody was. But why would the FBI let that guy off the hook or the militant from Utah who was there when Ashley Babbitt was killed and who was a provocateur who also has a very sketchy background? I mean, who's behind these people? I just don't know. Yeah, and also Nancy Pelosi is responsible for capital security, and they had requested more, and, and she denied it. So... On so, the House side, she yeah. is, yeah. I guess Mitch McConnell is on the Senate side. Yeah, so it's, it's, his it's, fault too. It's, it's a bipartisan, uh, it's the leadership, the Democrat and Republican leadership in the House and the Senate, and they appoint the members of a board that administers the Capitol Police. Of course they do, because they can't just have it be normal and functional. No, but you can have the Speaker of the House say, I'm, I want reinforcements yeah. and I want it. Now, you think the whole Capitol complex is about the size of a big Walmart shopping mm -hmm. complex, so it's... It's not that huge. It has 2,300 police officers on its force. Yeah, but police officers is generous. Like, they're more like TSA people. No, not the Capitol Police. They're pretty good. Some of them are better than others. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really yeah. Maybe they're better now. No, some, no, some were. Re I've worked with them since the 83 bombing. Okay. 1983 bombing. Because uh, uh, my friend and I were the ones who found the leaflets that Susan Rosenberg the weather underground terrorist left behind when she bombed the U.S. Senate in 1983. Now, this is an actual terrorist who actually blew up a bomb in the Senate. And she's out of prison now after receiving such a long sentence. Why Bill, was that? Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, who were the, the leaders of the weather underground, the organization that bombed the Capitol, are professors and have been forever and close, close friends with Barack Obama. Yeah. He says he launched his political career in their living room. In their room. living yeah. room. But this one, Susan Rosenberg, who put the bomb in the Capitol, she, Bill Clinton let her out of prison as one of her last acts as president with a petition from Congressman Jerry Nadler of New York, who's chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He's the guy who controls the FBI's budget. So there are all these weird pieces. Why would the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee petition to let a bomber of the Capitol building out of prison, yet he's one of the ones, he's not be, taking a big a big uh, profile in this whole narrative, but he's part of the leadership that is. And he's the one who was caught in the street saying that Antifa is just a myth. 
So we've got that. There's a lot of questions that we have to ask about who, what, where, when, and why. Yeah. It's like they're looking for class enemies the way the Bolsheviks used to do. So right. they don't care if an individual is guilty of something. They, they presume you're guilty because you're a class enemy, meaning you're part of a different social or economic class, mm -hmm. part of that enemy class. Therefore, you are guilty. It's the same thing that drives critical race theory. It's the same thing that drives the reparations movement. That by virtue of your, your race or gender or whatever else it might be, you are guilty because we have deemed you to be the class enemy. Right. It's in direct opposition to the American founding, which is individuals have rights. And, and coming full circle, it's why there was an insistence on the use of the term insurrection, even though, as Mike pointed out in his article about the polling, the American people weren't buying it. Uh, it didn't, you know, it, it didn't comport with what they physically saw. It didn't comport with the facts. But there was this insistence that it had to be a mass action. It had to be an insurgency, an insurrection, uh, because of that, because of that narrative, Mike, that you're talking about. You said something a, a few minutes ago, Kyle, about Washington D.C. and Antifa and so forth. Here, remember, it was just a year ago that we couldn't come to our office just yeah. a few blocks from the White House because nobody was allowed in downtown D.C. and all the buildings were boarded up. It boarded up three stories high. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't because of Trump supporters, was it? No. It was for Antifa and BLM rioting. Yeah, and that was, it was funny because it was like no one wanted to say that specifically, but they the assumption was that if Trump won, it was going to be, everything was going to be smashed, you know. There would like be a left-wing insurrection. Right, businesses yeah. were just instinctively boarding up, but I don't think they would have done the same if they knew Biden was going to win. Well, I mean, it's interesting because prior to the election, there were a number of of organized trainings in 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 order to what they were going to do if, uh, if in fact, Trump did appear to win on Election Day. And one of those trainings was conducted by professional anarchist Lisa Fithian, uh, Lisa Fithian has, you know, long reputation going back many, many years for being sort of the go-to organizer if you need uh, direct action. And uh, so I was watching the video, uh, the training that she was doing, and one of the things they discussed was the possible need to occupy uh, federal buildings. Uh, and yet this was said, uh, this was said, you know, relatively openly. I mean, I was, I watched it. Uh, and yet there's no interest in, in that. I mean, I'm not trying to imply that Lisa Fithian is behind January 6th. What I am trying to imply is that uh, certain people did not see a problem with occupying federal buildings. It was very obvious and they were advertising. <laughs> and they were very – and they were, they were advertising their willingness to do this. Um, and there was actual violence for months leading up to that throughout the entire city where people could not come to their jobs. So, you know, a credible threat. Yeah. Okay, so there's this article from, or it's in MSN, from the Washington Post talking about how the Biden administration is considering paying as much as $450,000 to separated immigrant families. So this goes back to um, President Trump's zero tolerance policy where all the viral images, videos, articles, everything was go or were going around social media how the kids were being separated from their parents. And now those parents who were in jail or whatever because they we're breaking the law by trying to en enter here illegally. Now the Biden administration is considering 
paying them almost half a million dollars each and letting them out. So, Kyle, this is your ballpark, so you can lead off. Explain this. Yeah, explain how. (laughs) I can't explain. Uh, It's insane. Um, But it's not surprising. I mean, it's it's all part of their their general approach to the problem, right? Which is they fundamentally, at the most ideological level, they don't actually accept the uh, importance or existence of national borders. Uh, so they fundamentally believe that anyone who crosses the border has a right to be here. Now, this is not what the law says. It's not what uh, either American or international law says. Uh, but nonetheless, that is actually what drives their approach. Um, and so the notion that you would, I mean, so first of all, they, they caused the problem by allowing uh, unaccompanied minor and young children entry into the country. But before that, they caused the problem when Obama said, I'm unilaterally with my pen and phone saying that the dreamers, children brought here as minors by their parents, are now legal in 2014. Before that, there hadn't been this problem with children coming across the border. They, The idea, this was a f- fully created problem. Right. So now there is a rush uh, by people to get children across the border with the realization that once children get across the border, the parents will be allowed across the border as well, right? Either either now or in 10 years or whenever, uh, because we have family unification policies in this country. So if you if one member of your family att- attains a legal status, they can very quickly bring the rest of their family over. So this incentivized... Chain immigration. Right. So this incentivized people to uh, either try to cross the border with their children or to try to send their children across alone, or even to uh, give their children over to human traffickers to try to bring them across, uh, all in order to take advantage of these policies. So we then had to do something about that, uh, and now you have the Biden administration essentially paying uh, paying them off for for the for the criminal act of crossing the border, which the Biden administration has encouraged them to do. Yeah, but what is what are What's their argument? Why do why would they get money? Period. Like, are they saying that there were legal damages because of the the? Because you separate that they, they are claiming that there are legal damages because they separated children from their parents. But the option was to put all of the family in jail, which we don't put kids in jail. But the other thing is, most of these kids were not with parents, so most like they tried or, to. Or reunify. we or we didn't know we didn't know who the adult they were with was. And so they, we didn't want to put a, them together until we knew who they were. Right, and this was a massive human trafficking problem. And the other thing is, so if you're a kid now stuck and no one's coming to get you, they part of the problem with reunifying families is that no one was coming for the kid because they were brought over by a trafficker or whatever. We don't know. Um, but also, most of these unaccompanied minors in September, um, HHS requires that a follow-up call with, whoever's released to make sure that the child and the, it's like going to school and those things. They've released 30,000 kids and of those only 15,000 calls were made. And of the 15,000 calls, only 30% got any kind of response. So we have no idea where, where these kids ended up or if they're safe or anything. Right. And and they're not taking responsibility in any way for this human crisis that they, that they themselves have caused. Right. That's one of the, in the, post article there's this line that says more practically speaking experts on immigration and immigration litigation say the biden administration is stuck in an unenviable position 
for a problem like that that they cause. I so mean, this is not for yeah, and that's right. For them, it's not an unenviable position at all. For them, it's a position they very much want to be in. Correct. And that people don't often aren't aware uh, of the way that the uh, some of these bureaucracies interact with various NGOs and political outfits on the outside. It, it's very common to have these groups sue the federal government uh, when they know the federal government will give them what they want, right? We see this whether it's on, uh, for example, uh, environmental issues and climate issues. Uh, they'll, you know, they'll file a lawsuit when they know the Biden, they know the guy that the Biden administration has put in charge of that portfolio and they know he's going to fold. And so they get, they get paid and they get whatever outcome they want. It speeds up the policy process. Yeah, right. Like the Baker, they went to an, an area, the Colorado Baker, where they knew a judge would rule in their favor, you know, like they, they pick and choose where they Right. Choose. It's forum shopping or it's, yeah. it's, yeah. So they, they know they can advance as, yeah, Mike, as you said, they, they can advance their policy through the court. Uh, and they don't even have to really fight a court case because they know that on the other side of the court case, the person agrees with them and yeah. is, is there to fold. But all, so and the policy might take a year or two to change, bureaucratically speaking, and it goes through all the different interagency processes and so forth. And Whereas it, a lawsuit can produce an almost immediate change. In and it allows the administration to say politically, oh, well, we had no choice. Yeah, and they're saying this is going to be less money than if it goes to court. Like, we're basically settling a lawsuit. We're not admitting guilt or whatever. I mean. Now, now and, compare that to the Biden administration's response to the Texas and Missouri lawsuit for remain in Mexico. So the states sued the federal government for the, the manner in which they terminated the remain in Mexico policy, which was a very effective policy put in by the Trump administration that was reducing traffic across the border. And, and in cooperation with the Mexican government. And in cooperation. Left-wing Mexican president got along fine with Trump on these issues. And we had the Mexican government was tougher against illegal immigration from the rest of the world than we were. So they were our first line of defense. And so the Biden administration gets sued because of the manner in which they terminate this policy. The judge says you have to implement the policy under good faith uh, until you can pass either 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 implement the policy in good place face or um, or, clo or, or close the policy in a responsible manner. So now the Biden administration has, which has said, oh, yeah, we're going to comply. We're going to comply with the judge's order, blah, 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 has just again, um, as we are uh, taping this, has said they're going to cancel the policy again. Uh, so it's now going to have to go back to court. Uh, but so the Biden administration will very aggressively uh, fight in court for their right not to carry out the law uh, in this case, but will fold like a cheap card table. Uh, when it comes to giving illegal aliens almost five hundred thousand dollars, so for doing something criminal, for doing right, something that, criminal, yeah. that's what I was going to ask: is what is the what's the legal argument behind? Because you're objectively breaking the law when you choose to come here illegally and you're in jail, and then you just get it's literally better than to get out of jail for free card. You're getting paid half a million dollars to. I think there's which is going to encourage more more of this, right? Right. I think they're saying that it was inhumane or or a violation of rights to separate. The families, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, if it, if you if a police officer beat you up wrongfully, you could sue for damages, and that's right. kind of the thing. Except you would be a citizen, and you wouldn't have broken the law in one case. Think also also of the strategy behind it when you have our law enforcement officers whose job is to protect our borders are being 
squeezed away from even doing their job. Now, Biden won't come out and say, don't do your job, but he'll make it as impossible as possible. That's mm-hmm. a term to for them to do their job by restricting, imposing restrictions on where they can make arrests, where they can make patrols and so forth. So you have that and a severe morale problem within our immigration enforcement services, while at the same time, the cash is going to these illegal aliens who they're supposed to combat in the process. You'll get the more dedicated border patrol people to quit. And that's that's a psychological warfare aspect that the Biden administration is waging to demoralize our own border enforcement people. Right. And also demonizing them publicly, you know, by saying they're whipping kids and stuff. Right. And then incentivize more illegal migration up here. Right. And they're basically just caring for kids. You know, they're they're supposed to. Kyle, you saw this like they're not doing their job of keeping the border yeah, they're not able they're not able to do their job at the border actually making arrests because they're busy doing paperwork to let people into the country. Yeah. Uh, and imagine there's no real investigation of international child trafficking. Right. Which this is. It's a crime against children. Right. It's by horrific. The, by the Mexican and other cartels that are smuggling these kids up, raping about a third of the girls and some of the boys on the way up. And then bringing them here and saying that America is responsible for this. Yeah, and and border part of the problem with the kids in cages and and is we're not the border patrols and ICE are not equipped to deal with kids. It's not been a problem in the past, and we're there are no good options when you have a kid without their parents that doesn't speak English. You know, like what are you going to do with a three year old? You don't have a lot of options. Right. But let's look at this too in the face of the January sixth. If you know what to look for, you can see that someone's organizing this for a purpose. So just as you could see the cadres in January 6th, you can also see someone's organizing this migration. Why is it all of a sudden that a caravan emerges from El Salvador? With a QR code. Right. And then another caravan from Honduras. And then caravans of only children. And then different demographic and sociographic groups brought in, uh, you know, in these different groups, these are organized events. And it's either either organized by international NGOs, which have a lot of money, or privately funded entities like Soros Projects, which have a lot of money, or by foreign governments. And so there's evidence to show that the Cuban and the Venezuelan governments may be behind a lot of these migrations for the purpose of causing us internal problems here at home. We don't know that for a fact yet because it's classified material, but you've had people from the intelligence community tell us that this is the information that they're picking up. So this is a state-sponsored operation against us, and we're not treating it as one. Why aren't we? Is it just because no one? Because they want it. They like the they, Democrats think that this will be voters for them forever. Yeah. Well, Which, I mean, by I the think... way, is racist to assume that people will only vote a certain, and that all people will vote a certain way forever. Oh, yeah. You talk to the Salvadoran immigrant communities. that you know, Trump was hugely mm-hmm. popular. It's 60%, 70% support. Among this, the Salvadoran voters, or at least Salvadorans here who could vote legally or illegally, however, but I mean, he had a huge popularity rating here because because of his attitude. They really liked that. And a lot of other Latino groups did, but I know I talked to a bunch of Salvadorans and, and talked to somebody who polled them in Virginia hmm. in the previous election. Problem is that Trump and the Republicans don't engage people much in the Spanish language, so they so the Democrats were able to take advantage. So this was part of the thing. The, these rich white progs presume that 
people of color, whatever that is, must think a certain way or they're not real people of color. Yeah, which, or just the, the basic assumption that people of a certain race all think the same way is actually racist. Right, yeah. they must think the same way. Yeah, because they're the same color. Orthodoxy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, but the other, I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right in, in saying that there's, you know, strong elements of, of the U.S. progressive, certainly this administration. They're not progressive. They're, there's nothing progressive about them. They're regressive. Well, self-identified. Yeah. Um, but so on the one hand, they desire this. But, and on the other hand, uh, Mike, as you know, like there aren't people in our national security agencies who are trained to think about issues like this in the way that you described. Uh, in the old days, you know, you would have had training in subversion and how states subvert other states through various policies. Uh, and you would think about things like the, you know, the Chinese smuggling of fentanyl or uh, the organizing of caravans, or you would think about those things in the context of asymmetric, of asymmetric warfare. Uh, and we don't think about those, we don't think about it that way at all today even though in the age of digital media where everybody is used to six-second clips on the Internet, it's probably the greatest age for subversion ever because uh, you can reach so many people so quickly with a story. Uh, and yet we don't, we don't have people that understand the, the nature of this kind of work. Uh, they're being driven out. The ones who are still there, they're not put in those duties. They're sent to the work, the, you know, Guyana desk or something, some practically useless post that's not rewarding and it's even a demotion. They're, li they're literally putting FBI agents in vehicles for old-fashioned kind of surveillance, you know, two cops sitting in a car watching some pawn shop. Or horrible positions that these really sharp, aggressive people shouldn't be in for the purpose of demoralizing them and, and shunting them aside. Are they surveilling school boards? <laughs> just no just the parents not the school board yeah. just the parents school board meetings yeah. but these things don't happen by accident there's some someone has to be organizing some of it somewhere some of it catches on and occurs naturally but somebody and there's and there's money to be made because yeah. i mean as, as people stress like nobody crosses the border without paying the bill uh you pay one of these human traffickers to cross the border and in fact you pay to cross every single border and also, so you, if you're coming up from Brazil or you flew from West Africa, you're going to pay and you're going to pay and you're going to pay and you're going to pay. And what's going to happen if those people that paid the cartels to get across and then the cartels get wind, oh, Joe Schmo has $450,000 more than he did when I helped him across. They're going to cough it up. Right. Yeah. And the Biden administration doesn't think about any of these or maybe downstream do. effects. Yeah. <laughs> maybe they do, but for a different reason. Right. We don't know. That's nefarious. <laughs> the thing with a lot of the illegal immigration, sort of the naturally occurring illegal immigration, it's sort of self-selecting. So in the case of Central Americans, it costs about $6,000 to get up to the United States, roughly. So the family members who are in the U.S. working will send the cash back home to El Salvador to pay the coyotes to bring him up to the U.S. because they're going to want to get paid back. Yeah. They don't want the criminal elements coming up. They don't want the mentally handicapped or the, the kid, the people who are going to be a burden on the system. They want to be paid back. So it's a self-selecting system of the best, hardest working people. Unfortunately, the criminal cartels have found it to be the same way. So they bring their hardcore criminals up here, too, because they want to get paid back on a larger multiple. But that brings up a point. It's not doing those people are exploited. They have to work under the table 
um, it's it's terrible what they are living with because of these policies too, right? So it's not humane. It's not the, these large mass migration policies. Yeah, yeah. I mean the actual illegal immigrants are not. Well, and they're you very vulnerable to being exploited by cartels coming back for another round of money. But I mean, you also have the the advantage that that you know American corporations are getting from the illegal immigration, right? It's cheap labor. Yeah, it's cheap labor. They, they're not, you know, they're not interested in in legal immigration where they would have to pay everyone the same wage that they have to pay Americans. They're interested in the low wages that you can get away with uh, paying illegal immigrants. Well, and, but also like grape pickers, illegal immigrants in California are being paid $16, $20 an hour, whereas a Stanford graduate who becomes a barista makes 7 <laughs> So really, it's a pretty nice way to live. I mean, I think it depends, though, because there are a lot of, if you can tell someone, oh, if you don't work for this much, I'm going to report you to the, I mean, there there are situations where they are exploited by companies. There's a reason Republicans haven't done anything on the border either, because they were support their their base was made up of rich people that didn't want to have to pay pay workers more. And then you have the you have the brain drain, which occurs when, as Mike points out, people are fleeing to the United States. People with ambition, people with capability, people with interest. Uh, and then you know Kamala Harris goes down to Central America and says, you know, oh, you know, why is it so terrible down here? It's like, well, you you keep poaching all of their best people. You know, they have whole villages that are totally depopulated because, you know, your your policies, Kamala Harris, uh, are encouraging people to come to the United States and live illegally rather than trying to make their the place they come from better. So, I mean, that what do you think? You know, you know I'd say, what do you think you're going to get? But they know exactly what they're going to get because yeah. that's why they do it. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notclear.org so we can get in touch with you.